Good morning, everyone. I greet you in Jesus' name. This, uh, the message this morning is not uh, constructed quite like, uh, like uh, my usual messages. Well, they're not all consistent either. But what uh, this ends up being a little bit of a, uh, a scrapbook this morning. And yet the, the uh, several lessons that we'll look at, I believe, do have a link if you listen closely, if you're awake enough to listen closely. And lesson one uh, is about cross-bearing and just thinking about cross-bearing. And you know, Jesus said we should take up our cross and, and follow him. And the way that expression is often used, I think if you think about it, you'll think of this, this also, that a lot of people look at cross-bearing as, as having a burden of responsibility or a problem that they alone must cope with. And it's usually unpleasant. And it's a, it's a heavy, it's heavy, and it cannot be easily changed. And uh, maybe it's a handicap, or, or maybe it's, um, you know, like my dad could say with his sight, or that that's a cross that he must bear, or, or caring for someone with special needs that we're close to, and it, it just takes uh, a lot of time and effort from, you know, the regular life that other people, everybody else is, is uh, able to do. But is, is that what Jesus meant when he talked about cross-bearing? And uh, I have a story I want to read to you this morning. It's, it's just a short story. Maybe I should have gotten Dr. Dan to read this story for us. It's it's about a doctor, it's from a book, Angels on Call, that Martha picked up here in our library, uh, where I think that uh, our librarian has some new books lying out. And this is just a, a little piece of it. He tells about different things that happened in the emergency room. And the first character we'll see here is Jeff Ryan, who was a nurse in the emergency room. And this doctor gives the stories in first person, first person. His name is Robert D. Leslie. And the story begins this way. He's in the ER. And he looked up as Jeff Ryan led Curtis Mays through the triage entrance. Curtis was one of the general surgeons on our staff. Curtis smiled sheepishly at me and then held up a bandaged and bloodied left hand. What have you done to yourself? I asked him, putting a chart down on the counter and stepping over to him. Just a little table saw accident, he told me. He was sweating and appeared a little pale. Jeff was standing behind him and he shook his head. Let's get you back to minor trauma, I told him, stepping out of their way. I'll be back there in just a minute. Okay, Robert, he said. It's nothing major. They turned and headed down the hallway. 
A few minutes later, I entered the room and found Jeff carefully removing the kitchen towel from Curtis's hand. One quick glance told me that this indeed was something major. His thumb was gone. There was a ragged and clotted stump where it should have been. It was amputated all the way back to the first joint. He was staring at his hand and then he sighed. He looked up as I walked over to his stretcher. What in the world happened? I asked him, pulling up a rolling stool and sitting down beside him. I was working in the shop, he began to explain, building a table out of knotty alder. And as I was making a cut, I guess I didn't read the grain of the wood, and something grabbed the blade and pulled my thumb into it, and before I could do anything, well, here it is. He held the stump up for me to see. Curtis was an experienced and talented woodworker, I had seen some of the beautiful furniture he had made, and I frequently reminded him that this was a dangerous hobby. Saws and lathes were no friends of flesh and bone. I looked down at his hand. There was exposed bone, and from what I could see, this was really a mess. How much pain are you having, I asked him, glancing over at Jeff. He turned and reached behind, re- reached behind him for an IV set up in fluids. You know, it really doesn't hurt too much, Curtis said, but it looks like it should, doesn't it? It looked like it should be killing him. We're going to start a line and give you something for pain, I told him. Then we'll numb up that thumb, that area, and see what we've got. There's not going to be much to work with, he volunteered. It's pretty chewed up. I brought the rest of it in just in case, but I'm not too hopeful. He reached into his pants pocket and pulled out a Ziploc baggie filled with ice. And on top of the ice was a mangled piece of flesh. I took the bag and inspected what was left of his thumb. We'll hold on to this just in case, I told him, knowing there was no chance of re-implanting this lost digit. Robert, I know better. He gave a wry grin. We got his IV going and gave him something for pain. An x-ray demonstrated the splintered end of the first metacarpal. I held the film up in front of the overhead light, allowing him to see. What a mess, he sighed. Who's on for ortho? I told him and explained I had already given him a call. And the operating room crew had been called in and would be ready in about an hour. Hmm, 40%, isn't that right? I nodded in understanding, and then he added, the thumb provides 40% of the function of the hand. Good thing I'm right-handed. Then he was silent, and I knew what he was thinking. He made his living with his brain, but also with his hands. I did too. And I wondered how I would deal with a devastating injury like this if it happened to me. I caught myself putting my hands in my pockets. Curtis was one of the best surgeons on our staff, known for his technical skills and abilities. He was also known for his relaxed and friendly bedside manner and for his genuine compassion. When patients in the ER were informed that they would need to see a surgeon, most of them wanted to know if Curtis Mays was available. That was going to change. 
This was a career-changing and life-changing event. It happened so fast, Robert, he said, interrupting my thoughts. You and I both know about accidents and how quickly they happen. We see it every day. It's just that, well, it's true. If only, he paused, and there was obvious regret in his voice and a quiet sadness. But his silence was brief. And he said almost cheerfully, Anyway, it's done, and we just need to get it taken care of. I had sat back down on the stool when Maud Weston walked into the room. She was the OR supervisor and had come in to help with Curtis's surgery. Maud was gruff and not known for being subtle. She stepped over and looked down at his thumb. Jeff was getting ready to wrap it loosely in some gauze, but it was still exposed. Maud adjusted her glasses, leaning over. Hmm, she murmured. You really did a number there, Dr. Mays. Then she stood up and patted him on his shoulder. You know, we all have our crosses to bear. I guess this will be yours. I grimaced, wondering what she could be thinking. She turned and walked out of the room. Jeff began wrapping the hand. Curtis was smiling when he looked over at me, and then he said, You know, Robert, I was about to say something to Maud, but I changed my mind. Maybe one day I will when the time is right. I wondered what he might have said. I had never seen him angry or heard him speak harshly to anyone. What would he have told her? She's wrong about that, you know, he said quietly. I'm sorry about that, Curtis, I said, apologizing for Maud. Some people just don't think before they... No, he said. I mean about this being my cross to bear, he interrupted. Now, don't get me wrong, Robert. I'm not happy about this, he gestured with his head toward his wounded hand. This is going to drastically change my life, or at least how I make a living. But Maud is referring to what Jesus said about taking up your cross daily and following him. The key word there is daily. And the cross is all about dying and about death. Jesus isn't telling me I'll have to deal with my thumb every day for the rest of my life and feel sorry for myself. He's telling me I have to die each day. I have to put my selfish ways to death each and every morning if I'm going to follow him. Hard stuff, isn't it? It makes this thumb seem pretty insignificant. Let's, uh, let's look at the context there of what Jesus said in Matthew 16 about cross-bearing and taking up our cross and following him. <clears throat> Matthew 16 and the verse is 24. <clears throat> then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's what Jesus said. That's that's the whole the whole verse. 
And the, and the cross is self-denial. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. You know, Paul had a thorn in the flesh. You remember how Paul had this thorn in the flesh that he wrote about in 2 Corinthians 12 and how uh, it was a messenger of Satan to buffet him. God allowed it. God allowed Satan to attack him in this way and lest, it, lest Paul should be exalted above measure, it says. And it, Paul said that he, tried, he asked God three times to be delivered from it, that it would depart from him. And God said, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Now these things are not the same self-denial and cross-bearing, or rather uh, a thorn in the flesh, except that the way that Paul responded was cross-bearing. And the way that Christ calls us to live is cross-bearing in that we deny ourselves and our selfish, our selfish desires and our selfish ambitions and our just to deny our selfishness that disregards others, that wants our way first, that wants our way above God's way and even above what God allows into our lives, even above the purposes that God has for, for us in, in what He allows for us to need to endure. And, and just to get a little broader context, you know, Jesus had here in this passage in Matthew just told his disciples again that he was going to be crucified and killed. And Peter rebuked Jesus and said, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. This isn't going to happen to you. And Jesus said to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Another translation I looked at this morning said, um, Thou savorest not the interests, God's interests, you know, God's thoughts and God's plans. But you're, you're just looking at this as, as a man would look at it. And even a selfish man. And then Jesus followed that up by saying, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's, uh, that's lesson number one this morning, that uh, Cross-bearing is self-denial, not just enduring something that is unpleasant. Lesson two, I want to think about the widow and the two mites she gave and the quality of our offerings. In Matthew 12, we see this little story this incident that, that happened in uh, 
Jesus' ministry where he and the disciples had entered the temple and Jesus sat over near the treasury where he could see where people gave their offerings. This is in Mark 12, beginning at verse 41. And Jesus sat over against the treasury and beheld how the people cast money into the treasury and many that were rich cast in much. And there came a certain poor widow and she threw in two mites which make a farthing. And he called unto him his disciples and saith unto them, Verily I say unto you, that this poor widow hath cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. For all they did cast in of their abundance, but she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living. It was hard not to notice the rich when they came in. They made large donations and apparently they did it with a, with a flourish they enjoyed being, uh, at least these, enjoyed being the center of attention. And then the widow comes in, no display, and with a simple earnestness, she drops in these two mites, about a penny. Well, we just had this school sale yesterday, and we've taken up offerings for the gym, and it's nice to have large offerings for big projects for missions, for whatever. But I think this tells us something about offerings that we need to know. God looks more at more than the amount of the offering. He looks at the quality of the offering. The rich had given large amounts from their surplus but it was a portion, maybe 10%, maybe 25%, maybe more, but it was only a part. And it was far from all. And as Jesus looked at this, and their motives were not good, and as Jesus looked at this, their offerings were of poor quality. You know, when it came to meeting the needs of the poor and building gyms and things like that, certainly... Thousands of dollars would go further than two mites. But God looks at the quality of the offering, the motives behind the offering. Poor as this widow was, she had given all that she had. It's all yours, Lord, she said. It was a small amount, but it was a large proportion. It was 100%. And God saw that. And Jesus said that she gave more than all the rest. She put all on the altar. There is that, uh, that familiar, uh, those couple of verses from Romans 12, the first couple of verses. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. There's, a, a, there's an order there in this, in this um, presentation of these couple of verses. 
first to present our bodies a living sacrifice. And then he talks, he, he calls us to nonconformity with the world and to the renewing of our minds. And sometimes, sometimes people get, uh, start with number two rather than with number one. And they can even become preoccupied with number two to the point that they neglect number one. But Jesus' way, God's way, is to give ourselves first. That is important. And then number two and number three follow if number one is real. The quality of our offering. Paul was a gifted man, educated. He had a lot of things going for him. You can read about that in Philippians 3. We'll not go there. And uh, in Acts 22, when, G when Paul talked to the Jewish mob in Jerusalem, in the Hebrew language, he said, I am verily a man which am a Jew born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers and was zealous toward God as ye all are this day. And in Galatians 1, verse 14, he's, it is, he's describing himself as having profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. But when Paul met God, you know, all those things just meant nothing beside knowing Jesus. And he put everything, he put his, his whole self on the altar what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. God did use Paul and God used his gifts, but his usefulness for the kingdom began when he laid his life on the altar the quality of his offering affected the quality of his usefulness. Uh, in, in one of Peter Hoover's books, I came across this little story about a Russian peasant. This happened back in the, uh, in the 50s. He was a young man and he was converted in a revival meeting uh, in Russia, some distance from his home, quite a long ways from his home, where he had been working in a mine, as I recall the story. And he also was fortunate enough, after he became a Christian, to obtain a Bible or at least a testament. I'm not sure whether it was the whole Bible or not. And he went back home. He returned home unannounced. But neighbors being curious, they saw that Jacob was back home and they began gathering at his house to see what his adventures had been and so forth. And they crowded in and the little house, the little house was packed. Now, Jacob was not an educated man, but he stood to his feet. And this shows you how important his Christian life was to him. 
he stood to his feet and laboriously read a few verses from the Bible. Then closing the Bible, he spoke a few halting sentences, certainly not a sermon, and then he knelt to his knees and he prayed a simple but profound prayer for the salvation of each one present. And it got very, very quiet. He didn't say any more. Then a woman began weeping and pushed her way through the crowd. Help me pray, she sobbed. And they knelt together and she began crying out to God for mercy. Shortly, the whole house full of people were on their knees, crying out to God. Some went home and awakened other family members and said, Come, the whole village is getting converted tonight. I was impressed with that little story. And it has a lesson too, and that is that unless God's Spirit is in it, nothing of eternal significance will happen. And it takes more than speaking well, speaking eloquently to touch a person's heart for God. In fact, God can even use the testimony of a semi-illiterate saint spoken in halting words to do a great work. We want to remember that only God can touch a heart and God can use even imperfect people to do His work when they are, when the quality of the offering is what it should be, all on the altar. That's lesson number two, the quality of the offering. Lesson number three. In the... Uh, you all know what the uh, catacombs were you know about the persecution of the Christians in Rome. Somebody said this, that the lives of the early Christians consisted of persecution above the ground and prayer below the ground. Their existence being defined by the Colosseum where they were put to death, many of them, and the catacombs where they fled to escape their persecutors and to worship and to pray and to bury their dead. The uh, catacombs were begun about the time of uh, Nero's persecution, great persecution in, in AD 70 or so. And they began to create what became a nearly 600 mile, uh, 600 miles of, of tunnels. 
mole-like tunnels that went all directions and intersected and like little streets of a, of a city. It is believed that also that as many as four million Christians have been buried there over, over time, long after the persecution even, but especially during those times of persecution. I, I could hardly, I didn't research this to see whether other sources say the same. That's a large number. But uh, quite a few of these Christian graves have been opened and their skeletons taken out and studied. And they tell a story of what was going on during those uh, times of persecution. Heads severed from bodies, shoulder blades broken, other bones broken, and bones showing signs of fire, damage from fire. And the walls of the catacombs are still covered with symbols that the uh, saints had put there. Most, uh, most of them were like um, the Good Shepherd, uh, someone, a, a figure holding a lamb on his shoulder, a ship under full sail, harps, anchors, crowns, and the fish was the most was the most common. And they're also covered with inscriptions, words. Here's one example that would kind of have the theme of many of their, of their inscriptions. Victorious in peace and Christ. Live in God. The word of God is not bound. Now here's some examples of, of epitaphs, inscriptions that were put on tombs above the ground of uh, non-Christians, unbelievers. One of them says this, live for the present hour since we are sure of nothing else. I lift my hands against the gods who took me away at the age of 20, though I had done no harm. Someone else obviously putting thoughts into the dead man's, putting, yeah, imagining what he is thinking. Another one, once I was not, now I am not. I know nothing about it, and it is no concern of mine. Traveler, curse me not as you pass, for I am in darkness and cannot answer. The point is the what what meaning what meaning life has when we know God? What a difference it makes on how we look at life, how we look at death.
how we look at others. Victorious in peace and Christ. Live in God. The word of God is not bound. To know the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, who dwells in the high and holy place, and with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. So we talked a little about cross-bearing this morning and what that really is, denying self. And that kind of merges into the second one, the importance of the quality of our offerings. And when we deny self bearing the cross as Jesus calls us to, and our all is on the altar, then life has meaning. And we have something to live for, and we have something wonderful to offer and to encourage each other with. 